what do we do at the center for economic performance? We ask how the economy works and how it can work better. For 30 years, we have studied economic performance at all levels, people, firms, communities, cities, regions, the country and the world. Professor Lord Richard Layard, the founder of CEP, asked, how can we make the world a happier place? Our research has led to better mental health services, happiness lessons for children, and statistics that track the nation's well-being. We ask how to improve working lives, how to reduce unemployment and wage inequality, and tackle low social mobility. We led the way to a national minimum wage. We asked, what drives productivity? We uncovered the management practices that boost corporate performance and economic growth. And we reflect on how research needs to change. We were pioneers in the economics of education, using big data to study what works in schools and colleges. We led theoretical and empirical developments in international trade and economic geography, enabling us to show the effects of Brexit. Our past work is already shaping the future, and we invest in that future. As one of just two research institutes funded by the UK's Economic and Social Research Council, we train new economists. We support the research community, nationally and internationally, to take on social science challenges, which require new thinking and bold action. As the world takes stock of the human and economic cost of coronavirus, we are sharing what we have learned about how to make the economy work better, asking about the impact of technology and globalization, tackling unemployment, inequality, crime and climate change so we can build back better. The challenges ahead make clear the need for impartial, high-quality evidence, now more than ever. Our research is out there, shaping the world. Your world. Welcome everyone. My name is Minoush Shafiq and I'm the Director of the London School of Economics and Political Science and I'm delighted to welcome you to this event with Professor John Van Rienen on the theme of going for growth. This lecture is part of a series that we've been holding this year to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Centre for Economic Performance which has been producing cutting-edge, groundbreaking, policy-focused research at the LSE since 1990. Today, John is going to tackle a big question. How can the UK and the world get back to sustainable growth following the COVID-19 pandemic? Pulling together research on the lessons of 30 years of work that he has done and others have done on technology, management and productivity, John will argue that innovation is the key to revitalizing our economies. Now, John doesn't need much of an introduction, but I'll give a brief one. He is the head of the LSE program on innovation and diffusion. And it, this work is part of a wider research program that he is leading at the school. He also holds the Ronald Coase Chair in Economics at the LSE. And between 2003 and 2016, he was the director of the Center for Economic Performance whose birthday we are celebrating today. John, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I'm going to turn it over to you. John will speak for about 30 to 40 minutes, and then we will open it up for questions from the audience, which you can put in the Q&A sections. Uh, this event is also being broadcast on Facebook for those uh, who want to see it online. So let me, with that, turn over to John uh, for his insights. Thanks very much, Manoush. Um, let me see if I can get my screen going. Um, can you can you see that? 
Yes, nodding. Good. <laughs> Excellent. That's the first. That's the first thing. Major technological uh, breakthrough. Um, okay, so um, I'm delighted to uh, be able to uh, talk to you a bit today um, on the an the anniversary of uh, the Centre for Performance. Um, you know, it's been, it was a real delight uh, uh, leading the centre um, when I when I when I did so. Although it's in more than capable hands now of uh, of Professor Steve Machen. Um and you know, what I'm going to try and do today is to pull together some of the, the research that I've done over the years and the centre has done. You know, and a lot of this is over to my students and my colleagues, both LSE and MIT, where I was before, before, I, before I came here. So um, let me just give you an overview of the kind of argument that uh, I, want to, I want to make here uh, today in the talk. Um, I actually, I put at the bottom of the screen, I should also thank, you know, Richard Layard, who you just saw as the founder director of uh, CEP. And I should also mention uh, Steve Nickel, who was also a longstanding member of the Center for Economic Performance. And he actually uh, was one of the people who kind of really emphasized the importance of thinking about productivity and growth and really emphasized that. And he's been very influential on, on my thinking. So, um, you know, the argument is, is a kind of simple one. We know that today the UK and the world faces a real challenge of um, maybe unprecedented scale due to the COVID pandemic. And we have to think about the way in which um, as um, hopefully we kind of rebuild ourselves out of that um, hole, it's a big hole, and we can do that in a way which can get us back to sustainable and equitable growth. And I think one of the things that we has been revealed by the by the pandemic is the existing weaknesses in both politics and the economy of many countries, including including our own. So I'm going to make an argument that our, our framework should be unashamedly about trying to get back to to growth, the right kind of the right kind of growth, which deals with the climate change and also tries to deal with the inequalities we have. And I'm going to argue that when we think about growth, the two kind of key things are to do with innovation, the generation of new ideas to the world, and the diffusion around the world and around the economy. And those new ideas are both technological ideas. Uh, kind of hard technologies, but also to do with management practices and organization, which are the, you know, often thought of being the softer side, but I'm going to argue are, are, as, are, are very important, maybe as equally important as the kind of hard technologies that we, we often focus on. And in, in my view, we actually know quite a lot um, from research, not just at the center, but from all over the world, over you know, what types of things are important for growth and for innovation diffusion. Um, and I think, you know, we can use that knowledge to put together a plan, a growth plan, which can deal with the kind of short run, what we need to do in the next 12 months, but also the longer run. But what Britain and other countries in the world need to think about over the kind of next decades in order to, to kind of take the opportunity as new vaccines roll out to, to um, build a, a more sustainable future. And, you know, I think, you know, what really needed is an urgency to do this right now and think about what kind of policies we need to do right now. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk for about um, 30 or 40 minutes and then kind of open it up. So, you know, very, very much hope to get your feedback and questions on the things that we're going to go through. So I'll talk about the challenge that we face to begin with. I'm then going to spend a little bit of time defending about why I think an emphasis on growth is important, then talk about understanding it, talk about some of the puzzles in the UK, and then finally end up with what I think are principles of uh, the growth plan that we need. So here's, a, here's some measures of the challenge that we face. So um, this is, um, you know, the last um, 12 months or so. This is what's happened to uh, the GDP and the economy. And, you know, you can see that, you know, there was this enormous fall of about a quarter of the size of the economy uh, in April last year. And although there was some recovery over the summer, you can see as we went into the, you know, the second and then third lockdown now, uh, also, uh, you know, a negative impact on, on, on GDP. So, you know, the most recent numbers I saw from the Bank of England a few days ago suggested maybe the overall loss might be about 10 percent for, for 2010 in terms of GDP. Now, why has that happened? Well, we know why that's happened. It's to do with the pandemic and the set of policy responses that we've had to have in relation to uh, dealing with the pandemic. Um, this shows you, this graph shows you, um, I'm sure many of you have seen this before, this is deaths per, uh, per capita per 100,000 in the UK 
uh, compared to uh, other countries, uh, US, Germany, Italy, France, and Japan. And you can see that we're, although all countries have taken a, you know, a hit in terms of the health costs of the pandemic, Britain has been particularly hard hit. So you can see that, you know, both in the first wave and also in the, in the kind of second wave, the uh, the impact on the UK has been particularly tough. And, you know, part of this is clearly due to kind of um, policy reasons with the slowness of going into lockdown, as well as the emergence of, of the new UK uh, UK variants last year. But this is, you know, un, you know ultimately what's, what's behind this. Um, if we look at this in comparable standards it's you know in a way it's unsurprising given that the um the kind of health hit we had was so great that if you look at the overall gdp hit the uk has been one of the uh, hardest hit countries of, in the oecd um so you know this or this you know, this suggests britain of, of these comparative countries got hit by 11 percent, maybe it's 10 percent according to the bank of england no matter what it is the, you know the uk clearly is taking one of the biggest economic hits due to the pandemic so a very kind of serious position so this is just the last year let's see what this looks like if you look a li little more historically so this looks at um the size of the economy gross domestic product since 1955 so you can see steady growth here's the um, global financial crisis in 2008-2009. Now we thought when this happened, this was you know the kind of the largest maybe hit of in terms of the economic damage in, our, in my lifetime. But you know the COVID hit has actually been larger than the global financial crisis. So you know it actually is um, more serious and much bigger fall than we experienced during the the uh, collapse of Lehman's and the events which uh, which went around that. Now, I've, 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 you know, I've, I've looked at GDP. This is one measure of the size of the economy. But it's important to recognize, and this is the theme that I will keep coming back to, that the size of the economy or GDP or however you measure it is not the most important thing for welfare. Increasing the size of the economy, for example, just by having a bigger population or increasing the amount of hours people work, is not obviously a desirable thing. What really matters, what is desirable, is if we can increase um, GDP per capita or increase GDP per hour worked. So productivity, at it its simplest, is how you can get more outputs for the same amount of inputs. So, you know, if you're just increasing the amount of hours worked, that's an input. And really what matters is how much extra output you can get per hour work. So the most important input is people, labor hours. A more sophisticated measure also takes into account how, how many capital inputs get put in. Um, this is sometimes called total factor productivity. But the simplest measure is this labor productivity, like GDP per hour. And that's important because in the long run, wage growth, people's income growth um, generally follows productivity growth. So in terms of the, um, the way you should think about it is if we can generate more productivity growth, this increases the size of the economic pie, which gives us choices. And, you know, as a society, we can choose how we spend those that additional growth of the pie. We could spend it on more public goods like health or education. We could spend it more on leisure activities so we can work less, take more holidays. We could uh, spend it on more consumption. We could spend it more on environmental improvements or redistribution, but it gives us opportunities. It gives us chances. It gives us a new, you know, a choice of what we, we want to we want to do. Um, the, the given that, let's look at what's happened to UK labour productivity. So this is since 1979. So this blue line is this measure of labour productivity: how much output we get per hour worked. Um, and this, uh, you know, I put Lehman's, which is the global financial crisis in the second quarter of, two, uh, of 2008. And I put on, I've super, super imposed on this, the kind of long run trend productivity uh, level of the British economy. So you can see that, you know, in the 30 years prior to the global financial crisis, Britain was actually growing above its long run productivity trend. This was actually, as I'll, and I'll talk about this all, it's quite a good period of time for productivity. But what's stunning is what happened after the global financial crisis. So there was a fall of productivity and then a recovery. But then since about 2010, 2011, productivity has been almost flat. So here is COVID right at the end. So you can see that productivity took a hit in COVID. But really, the, the, the challenge is actually the fact that there's something like a 30% gap between where, where we would have expected to be based on pre-crisis trends compared to where we actually are today. So this is a, a huge difference. I think this is probably the number one 
a problem, economic problem that Britain faces is why we've had such slow productivity growth over this period of time. And I'm going to give you some 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 ideas later in the lecture about why I think that's happened. And you know, more, more importantly, I think what we can maybe do about it to improve things. Now, you know, the reason that slow productivity growth matters, as I said, is it, is it influences, I'll show you, pay growth. And I, I think that one of the main reasons that we have had, not just in Britain, but all over the world, an upsurge of kind of populist anger has been because of slow wage growth, not just slow wage growth um, at the top of the distribution, but for the, the median person, the people in the middle of the distribution. So if you went, you know, if you have an era of, of 13 years or so of very, you know, where the, the typical person is hardly getting any increase in the real wages, people don't feel they're any better off than their parents. This is, you know, causes quite rightly a lot of, a lot of anger. And especially when some of those, that pain has, has, has been felt more on, on, on people uh, throughout the, the income distribution. Okay, so that's the, the kind of challenge we face, and it's a, it's a, a big and a very a serious challenge. What I, what I want to talk about first is, to, is to, to deal with some of the objections to this kind of focus on, uh, on, on thinking about growth. So there's at least five objections. The first objection, you know, is, is the one that, well, you know, growth is all very well, but we know it's not really workers who benefit from growth. It's the owners of capital who benefit from growth. Um, so it's not really workers, but capitalists who benefit from the kind of economic growth that I, I've emphasized. Now, that's a completely legitimate concern. So let's have a look at that. So here is the um, the line for labor productivity that I showed you before. So we see this kind of flattening after the global financial crisis. And here is what's happened to kind of average uh, compensation or you know, av average kind of workers' workers' wages. So you can see that over this time period as a whole, workers have, have, have followed what's happened to productivity. So there's been about a doubling of productivity growth since 1980 and a doubling of workers' compensation since 1980. So, in fact, you know, just as, you know, basic economics would argue, you know, productivity growth kind of goes hand in hand with f faster worker average compensation growth. So, you know, you know, another way of saying this is that the share of the economic pie which has been going to workers has more or less stayed the same over over this uh, this this kind of four decade period so it's it's kind of an important thing i think because a lot of people uh, assume that that's not the case and that um you know that workers compensation hasn't got up the same as productivity but in the uk it has now that's not true of every country in, in other countries that's not true and for example if we look at the united states and this is often where people kind of focus on you know as uh, as one of, as the kind of one of the largest countries in the world um this you know this purple line here is what's happened to productivity and this blue line is what's happened to average compensation, the same lines that I just showed you before, over a longer time period. So you can see in the US, since from the Second World War to the early 1980s, those lines kind of kept up with each other. But over the period I just showed you in the UK, what happened in the US is that workers' compensation growth grew much more slowly than productivity growth. So this is the fall of the, the share of labor that I and many other people have, have written a lot about. So in the US, um, there was clearly a gap opened up. So you know, wages partially followed um, productivity growth, but not as not, not it didn't grow as quickly in the US, whereas it did in the UK. Um, it's also important, of course, um, that the average wage here, average compensation, is different than the median. The median is what the person in the middle of the distribution gets, whereas the kind of average compensation is tilted because there's a lot of people earning, you know, very high amounts, of, very high amounts of money, and this is a kind of measure of inequality. So, if you look at um, what's sometimes called decoupling, which is the difference between what's happened to typical workers' wages and productivity per hour or productivity, then you can see in the US, the reason you've got decoupling is partially because of the fall of the labor share and partially because of an increase of inequality. And as I'll show you, although inequality has also increased in, the, in, the, in, in Britain, uh, the labor share, as I just shown you, hasn't fallen. Which leads on to the kind of second objection, which is that you know, faster growth means more inequality. So that would be a reason that we wouldn't want to uh, emphasize, you know, growth because growth inevitably leads to more inequality. Now, if you think about this, it's, you know, in a moment's reflection suggests, well, it's, you know, it's, it's probably not likely to be so obvious because, you know, if you look around the world, some countries like the United States have a lot of inequality 
and are also you know pretty productive. But other countries like the Nordic countries, like Sweden, uh, like Denmark, are also very productive and have very low inequality. So it's kind of unlikely that there is a, a strong relationship. You know that um, you know richer countries or faster growth leads to more inequality. And indeed, you know, there's been a lot of increases of inequality um, in different countries over the last few decades. So. You know, in the US, for example, the increase of inequality starts in the late 1970s. This wasn't accompanied by faster growth of anything. Growth slowed down since the kind of oil shocks in the mid-1970s. So, again, there's no uh, obvious relationship. In fact, if anything, you can argue that high inequality can actually be bad, be bad for growth. And the final consideration is that if you think about, you know, if you want to um, have more redistribution, it's much easier to redistribute when the economic pie is growing fast. If you if you have stagnant kind of productivity growth that we've witnessed in the last um, last 13 years or so, actually trying to get, you know, if you get to, if you're trying to redistribute in the context of a kind of static pie, you're having to take a lot away from some people, whereas if the economy is growing, it's often easier to kind of do a redistribution. So for all those reasons, I actually think that, you know, there's no reason why faster growth means faster inequality. And if you look at the UK, here's, uh, there's two measures of inequality. The 90-10 ratio is the difference between people in the top 10% and people in the bottom 10%. Um, uh, that, that's on that's, that's on the the kind of dark green line. Here is the uh, uh, the share of the top one percent. This is my friend Tom Piketty likes uh, this particular measure, so I put this on as well. And you can see that you know, although it's true during the kind of you know Mrs. Thatcher nineteen eighties, you had both faster growth and and more inequality. That wasn't true for you know when you hit the nineteen nineties, inequality on this measure has been pretty stable, and even on this measure, it's been pretty stable since the late nineteen nineties. So you know, although we had you know good productivity growth. Um, in that in those 10 or 15 years leading up to the pre-financial crisis, we didn't see um, big increases of inequality. And indeed, in the kind of 1960s, where we also had pretty fast growth, inequality was pretty stable. So really, in my view, going back to um, you know what's happened to mean and median wages in the UK, really the problem, especially after the global financial crisis, is that you know productivity has has stagnated, and you know mean real wages and, and mean median wages have also stagnated as well. So there's been an increase of inequality predating the financial crisis, but the real problem has been kind of stagnant pro productivity pushing down. Um, Wage is almost anywhere you see in the distribution. This is really an awful period for what's happened to wages. This is the uh, one of the longest periods of wage stagnation we've seen actually for, for hundreds of years. Okay, so so you know I, I don't think that uh, an emphasis on growth uh, is, is bad bad for workers in both those sense. What about the third objection that growth actually is a, is inevitably bad for the environment? And I think this is uh, an important challenge to take on because, you know, the, one of the main things that we have to deal with looking forward is to try and uh, tackle climate change. But again, I think, you know, there's three considerations I'd say why an emphasis on growth is important here. First of all, uh, in order to uh, tackle climate change, we're going to need green, clean innovation. We're not going to be able to tackle climate change purely by um, regulation or purely by uh, trying to you know, increase taxes, we're actually also going to need technology. So technology and growth and innovation has to be a key part of the way that we tackle climate change. Uh, a second thing, you know, although I've you know, shown you measures of GDP for convenience, you know, a more appropriate measure of growth like net domestic income should include the depletion of natural capital. So there was a, a very good report released by my former teacher, Partha Descupta, who really emphasized that when we think about proper measures of growth, we should be taking into account the way that natural resources and biodiversity are being depleted. So you know, a, a good measure of growth will take that into account quite rightly. And finally, if we think about how you know the political will to actually enact climate change policies i think you know during times when times are very tough people are not going to be focused so much on climate change as as they would do if we can get sustainable kind of growth so if we can get good productivity growth then i think it's actually going to open more political space to actually make some of the tough decisions we need to make in order to deal with climate change so for all those reasons i don't think there's any necessary connection between uh, growth and, uh, and environmental degradation. In fact, I think that growth can be a, a way of uh, actually helping us deal with um, the problems that we face of climate change if we think about growth in the proper way. 
Fine. Uh, fourthly, you know, and of course, this is um, pulling, you know, going back to lots of work that Richard Layard has uh, been pioneering on in the last uh, last few decades is the issue about happiness and uh, and 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 well-being. So, you know, the the question is, you know, we may get growth, but that won't make us any that won't make us any happier. Now, this is, of course, so, you know, a really important point. So material well-being increases of um, of, of productivity uh, doesn't necessarily make us any happier. But, you know, I, I would appeal, you know, it's hard to measure happiness, although we've, we've had made improvements in our measurement of it. But, you know, I, you know, I think there is a lot of evidence uh, that, in fact, uh, improvements in material well-being do actually help us improving our kind of uh, overall sense of well-being as well. I often appeal to my, uh, my Aunt Lorraine here, who, who has told me that uh, although money doesn't buy you happiness, it often makes your misery a lot easier to bear. And I think there's an important grain of truth in that, in the sense that, you know, it really is the, it is the case that people who are in, in, greater, in greater poverty and poorer tend not to be happier. And if you look uh, across countries, um, there is a relationship between uh, the degree of uh, kind of material well-being here on the x-axis and the degree of life satisfaction on the on the y-axis, even in wealthier countries. So you can argue about the strength of this relationship, but there clearly is some type of relationship there. So I still I do think that um, although we should take very seriously the importance of uh, other dimensions of well-being having improvements of people's material well-being through productivity is part of the overall package of things we need to do to improve overall life satisfaction. So, you know, I hope uh, this has, um, you know, managed to convince at least some of you that I think an emphasis on growth is the right, is a, is, a, is a good thing to have. But of course, there is a fifth objection. This is going to be the subject of the rest of the lecture, which is, oh, well, that may be very well, but is there anything we can do about it? Maybe there's nothing we can actually do to improve the growth rate. And, you know, the kind of pessimism about growth is, in a way, the kind of new normal, I think, in a lot of the kind of media discourse that we have around, around, around growth. Uh, I put, uh, you know, my, uh, you know my, 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 my friend Robert Gordon down here as someone who's actually argued that, you know, we have to just get used to low growth. And indeed, the traditional approach in economics has been a little bit like that. You know, growth has been something which is, uh, exogenous there's nothing we can do to alter we just have to adapt to it and adapt our policies to whatever those those, those the growth rate happens to be now philippe agion who i also put here who is uh, my colleague here at lse and also my frequent co-author has been the pioneer of modern growth theory and the, the the difference between traditional economics and modern growth theory is that modern growth theory really um, emphasizes that institutions and policies can actually change the, the 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 speed of growth and I, I think that you know a lot of the work which has been done by Philippe and many other people and many people at the CP has strongly shown that there are things that can be done there are ways you can influence markets institutions and policies to actually improve the rate of innovation and growth um, and you know as as a kind of a bit of a uh, you know you know the, the you know, exhibit number one in this is actually what's happened to the UK so it's often not recognized that in the UK, um, there was a, a long period of time um, over of, of something like 100 years where the UK fell behind um, other countries in terms of its national income per person. In the, in the example, as I'll show you in the US, Germany and France. But for the 30 years leading up to the global financial crisis, Britain actually managed to reverse that, that decline. And, uh, you know, I think that's not, um, you know, that's not unrelated to many of the policies which were kind of introduced under parties of both power in that period. So just to show you that, um, what, what this bar chart does is it, it normalizes um, uh, income per person as 100 to be the UK. This is 1870, um, you know, and the height of this bar, this is the US, for example, of 77. So, so, you know, back in 1870, the US was something like 23% poorer than the UK. France and Germany, they were something like 40% poorer than the UK. Then over the course of the next um, 100 years or so, um, these other countries caught up and overtook the UK. So part of that was natural. Britain was the kind of first industrial nation, which gave us some advantages. But not only did these other countries catch up, but they kind of vastly outstripped us. And the US, by uh, the late 1970s, was, has a GDP per capita of 43% higher than, uh, than the UK had, and between 11 and 16% in France and Germany. 
So, you know, this was the period of long economic decline that the UK had. But over the next 30 years, things changed. So, you know, on and the, and the eve of the global financial crisis, Britain had uh, reduced by a quarter the, uh, the gap it had with the US and it had completely caught up and overtaken a little bit uh, what had happened in France and Germany. So, you know, though you know, that's a real change which happened at the UK. And if you, and if you look at why those changes happened, I think it's reasonable to think that, and there's evidence, that these were parts, you know, these went together with a package of policies which changed the way that the economy worked. So, broadly speaking, there was a set of, you know, pro-competition policies, which joined the European Union, helped create the single market under Mrs. Thatcher and Jacques Delors. There was a strengthening of competition policy, particularly, you know, when Gordon Brown was chancellor. There was an opening to foreign investments, uh, reduced government subsidies, reduced, you know, attention for national champions. And that openness actually is, you know, I think one of the important things which created new markets, created more competition, and actually uh, helped helped uh, Britain grow. There was an increase of flexibility of labour markets. There was a big increase of uh, human capital and skills through higher, greater higher education. There was more um, independent regulation. The Bank of England was giving regulation. So the set of all these policies, these structural policies and these policies to actually increase um, increase the kind of inputs to productivity actually paid some dividends over this over this time period. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, a focus on, on growth is, is, you know, shouldn't be confused with just the obsession with GDP. Proper measurements of it should include human natural capital. We should take a dashboard approach towards thinking about, about this. So we should certainly think about health and equality. But I think this, this focus on growth really is a, an important and, and very defensible thing to do. Let's think a little bit about what are the kind of drivers of growth and how we should understand growth. So here's the big picture. So I, I, you thought 1870 was a long way back. Now I'm going to go back 2,000 years. So here's the number one fact of what's happened for, for growth in, in the world. This is Western Europe and, and the United States. So this is sometimes called the hockey stick kind of picture, because what you can see here is like a kind of hockey stick. This is... Um, Per capita, per, you know, per capita GDP again, and you can see that you know since 1800 and today there's been this big increase of uh, of, of our GDP capita, something like 1280 in 1800 to so about 26,000 today. And of course, the, the history of humanity is that you know in the past, you know whenever there was you know things there was times of having you know good harvests, you know population would increase, but then you know things would go back to normal. There would be um, you know a lot of a lot of starvation. Uh, this Malthusian trap was broken um, around, you know, 1800 or the centuries leading up to that, giving us the first industrial revolution and giving us this way of breaking out of these poverty traps that we'd been in before. And, you know, if you don't like GDP, look at what's happened to health. So even as early as, you know, as recently as 1918, one in 10 in, uh, children in England died before they were five years old. And today this is less than one, one in 200. So this incredible increase of wealth has led to real improvements in people's people's um, health and uh, you know in, in a very very basic very basic way now where does this growth come from well you know there are a lot of sources of growth um, but the growth is fundamentally a story of, of technical change and improvements of efficiency and innovation it's not about just more people or more capital so if you decompose the growth of output per hour um, in the in the US, for example, this has been about two and a half percent per annum since the Second World War. Two percent of that comes from improvements of uh, innovation, from total factor productivity, sometimes called the solar residual, after my former colleague Bob Solo at MIT. And about 0.5 percent comes from capital and labour. So, you know, these are important, but 80 percent of, of of this improvement has come from technological change. So, you know, that is the kind of key important thing when we think about the growth story now as i mentioned at the beginning there's actually two parts of that so one is the kind of the kind of hard technologies that we think about but the other is also the way we organize work through management the management practices as emphasized by adam smith uh, and uh, many other people so you know it's probably easy to convince you that technology matters so if we think about the kind of history of the uh, of, of the industrial revolutions first in england under steam 
in the late 18th century. Then under the incredible second industrial revolution in the late 19th century, we had the innovations of illumination with Edison, of automate uh, mobility under uh, the internal combustion engine, of communication of the wireless as an you know, amazing wave of innovations in the second industrial revolution through to the third industrial revolution under the kind of Moore's law, if you like, this, you know, the growth of the internet, the growth of digital computers, um, you know, this is powered by vast improvements in the productivity in the semiconductor chip industry, something like 35% a year. And maybe through to the kind of fourth industrial revolution that we're living through now with the era of machine learning and artificial intelligence and large, huge data sets of robotics, of gene therapy. So, you know, these innovations are powering the changes that we've seen. But I want to emphasize it's not just about the kind of hard technologies. Management is also, an organization is also an important part of this. Whether those are the kind of uh, changes that we saw through Frederick Taylor's scientific management all the way to Alfred Sloan's new form of uh, organizing companies through the modern Toyota Lean manufacturing system. And really the story here is that you get these kind of major innovations that I've talked about, but in order to make best use of them for productivity, you often need to make a lot of changes to the way that you work. So, for example, if you look at the, uh, the, the innovation of electricity, it took um, many decades before that fed through to productivity because there was a need to change the way that factories worked, to run through the factory system using lighting, um, you know, run it, running at a high speed for longer periods of the day. So these management changes were really um, what sometimes called complementary inputs, which enabled that technology to uh, to, to, be, to actually be used effectively. And I think that may also be true when we think about the long time it takes for computers to have shown up in the productivity statistics and maybe for artificial intelligence too. Another way of thinking of this is that firms can spend huge amounts of money on technology and this can end up having very little effect on productivity unless, we, you, know, unless you actually have um, good organization and management to use, to use those. Um, so thinking wh whether it's about technology or about management there's at least two different sources of this so one is this new ideas to the world which is innovation or frontier productivity growth the second is um, how those ideas diffuse through the economy how they spread through the economy now innovation is actually harder than diffusion so inventing the wheel was uh, pretty hard but once it was invented, it could diffuse a lot more quickly, uh, you know, because it, people just had to copy it rather than having to come up with it again for the first time. And you know, I put guns, germs, and steel. Those of you know Jared Diamond's book as an example. Now, diffusion is not is not necessarily simple. It has important geographical elements. Has a lot of you know issues of information. But certainly, it's kind of uh, easier to do than coming up with the ideas in the first place. So, if you think about uh, many developing countries, as as countries emerge, they can rely a lot on diffusion on using ideas generated elsewhere. But as countries become rich, like the UK has, catch-up growth becomes much harder. And you have to think about innovating at the frontier. So there's lots of different industries and technologies. You can't just rely on, on catch-up growth. Now, a really important part of this process is what economists sometimes call reallocation, uh, which is the idea that resources need to get moved between one firm some types of jobs and other types of jobs. Innovative firms often displace incumbent firms. It's called creative destruction. The diffusion of new techniques is often done by young firms rather than older incumbents who are slower to adapt to new technologies. So this dynamic process, Schumpeter's creative destruction, is a really important part of growth. It's not just the same firms becoming more productive. It's the reshuffling around of assets and activity amongst different firms. And I'm going to return to this when I talk about what we need for a kind of a growth plan to get out of our current crisis. I'll say a word or two about management practices. As the video at the beginning said, that you know, CP has been pioneering and trying to think about these. So, you know, um, I, the, there was a survey, uh, you know, not too long ago by Chad Sives from the University of Chicago who said that you know, no protect potential driving factor of productivity has seen a high, such a high ratio of speculation empirical study. And what he meant by that was people often talk about management being important. You know, I've, here's the actually... Uh, uh, the San uh, this is from the San Francisco airport, uh, uh, airport uh, bookshop. And you can see here lots of books, lots of case studies about, you know, Steve Jobs or Amazon or other famous firms. I taught, used to teach at a business school. You know, we love to use case studies to teach. But of course, 
you know, I, you know I, as we say, one swallow doesn't make a summer. A single case study is an observation of one, and it's highly selected. And uh, this was actually brought home to me very vividly when uh, I started working in this area, and I went to see a. Uh, there was a partner, senior partner in one of the world's top management consultancy firms talking about his new book. And he was describing this case study of this company he'd done, which was the most amazing company with the best management practices and was really innovative and how other companies should be em em emulating this great company. And then it emerged as he was talking, uh, he didn't actually mention this company, but this company was this company called Enron. And uh, I'm not sure how many of you uh, are old enough to remember Enron, but uh, Enron uh, was an energy trading company, very highly valued on the on the on the stock market, but uh, you know was found out to have been you know kind of doing accounting uh, irregularities and basically stealing money off its shareholders. And as this senior consultant was speaking about his book. Um, the CEO of Enron was being taken off in chains by U.S. Marshals <laughs> and arrested and put, put it into prison. So, in fact, some people were saying you should change the logo from Enron from this to this, as Americans say, flipping the bird, uh, as, uh, as this is the way that Enron was treating its workers and shareholders. So, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, single case studies, although they're very good for teaching, are not necessarily good for proving, uh, proving the case. So what, some of the work which has been done by myself and colleagues at the CEP has been trying to get much better measures of management. And we've done this in many ways. One way is from this thing we call the World Management Survey, which is uh, 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 interviews with um, um, managers from all over the world, from everything from manufacturing to hospitals to retail. Uh, we've now interviewed about 25,000 managers in 39 countries since we started in 2004. And we've helped build up a database looking at basic things around management about how you collect data in your firm, how you do goals and target setting, how you incentivize people through the rewards, through hiring and firing and so on. And, you know, we found this was, um, you know, this database has been a very useful one to understand about the role of management and productivity. If you, if you look at the average management scores across countries, you see that this is pretty highly correlated with what the productivity levels are. So, you know, the UK is not doing too badly, but you can see that, you know, we're well below some of the leading countries like um, the US, Japan, Germany and Sweden. If you look within every country, you see this enormous variation of management uh, across different uh, firms. So, you know, this is showing the distribution. So although the US, for example, has a high average management school in the UK, there's many, you know, very badly managed US firms and there's many very well managed UK firms. One of the big differences is that, you know, in the US, there's a lot fewer really badly managed firms than there is in the UK. The UK has a much longer tail of low productivity, badly managed firms. And it suggests that, you know, either through improved diffusion or through more reallocation, this should be a way of improving the management and therefore the productivity of the UK. These management scores are highly correlated with productivity, but also with profits, with growth, indeed with innovations, measures like R&D and patenting and exporting activity. And if you try and use this to kind of figure out how much of the UK productivity gap you can account for, it accounts for a reasonable amount. So it accounts for maybe half of all the productivity gap is related to these kind of management practices. So, you know, the bottom line on this is that, you know, technology matters, but so does organization and management. So we need to think about both of those. And actually, for those of students who are in the room, I'll say one good thing about this kind of research, you know, we, we do the radical uh, econometric methodology called talking to people, which is what uh, not uh, many economists do. And when you talk to people, you find things that you weren't necessarily expecting. So uh, we interviewed this one production manager who said, uh, we asked him, you know, who are you owned by? And he was very honest. He said, we are owned by the mafia. The interviewer started uh, getting very nervous on the other end of the telephone at that point. And uh, he said, I think that's in the other category, although I guess I could put you down as an Italian multinational. So uh, all this data, by the way, can be downloaded from the, the site uh, I just showed you. So, you know, you can, you're welcome to uh, have a look through that. Um, having lived in America for quite a while um, before I came back to the LSE, uh, my, my uh, daughter was at, uh, at the government school in America. And I can say, that you know the americans you know do well in, you know, in some dimensions of management and productivity uh the the uh, the teaching of geography needs a little a little bit to be desired so uh you know one question we asked was how many production sites do you have abroad and the manager in indiana uh which is in the u.s said uh, well we have one in texas which uh you know some people say texas is a different country so maybe that was the right answer
Okay, so let me just circle back to where I started in terms of the UK productivity puzzle. So, um, you know, there are, uh, you know, given time constraints, I can, I can spend a long time talking about why UK productivity has been so poor since the financial crisis. I don't think there's a silver bullet. Explain. We, the truth is, we don't know all the explanations here. You know, the low productivity has been a long-standing problem in the UK. There's probably some degree of mismeasurements. Um, there is a global problem. It's not just in the UK. I showed you in the US. There's also been some slowdown of productivity growth, even though it's been faster in the UK. I think the exposure that the UK had to the financial sector has been important. So the hangover of debt, of zombie firms, of um, the problem of the fact that there's not enough finance to make investments is important. I think policy was also important. We moved too quickly to austerity after the global financial crisis. That also meant that we had very big cuts in public investment and infrastructure, and more recently, Brexit uncertainty. All these factors are probably more matter. But I think, you know, you know one, one message, I think, is regardless of how we got into the mess, the issue is how we, we get out of it. So even with the best analysis of the world of how we got here, we have to think about how we, we move forward. And one aspect of this, I think, which is important, is looking at research and development. So if you look at research and development as a fraction of our, our GDP from 1981 onwards, you can see that the UK, uh, you know, although at least arrested some of the decline, is now below where most of our comparative countries are. So co certainly compared to the kind of Asian, uh, East Asian countries like China and South, and South Korea, whose R&D has increased a lot relative to the, the income, but also well below now Japan, Germany, the US and France. So there is a, a, a straight challenge of you know, insufficient resources going into kind of research and development. So my, my last um, five minutes or so, let me move on to you know, how, how we can, or some ideas about how we can get out of the, 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 the problem that we're in. So, uh, you know, given time, I'm not going to go, be able to go into all the, all, the, all the details of what the plan is. I think there's a kind of a short run and a long run element to it. An important principle is that we need to link these short and long run things together and our policies need to be evidence-based. If you're interested in more of the details of the types of um, the kind of growth plan we could do, I, I, would, I would point you to the excellent LSE Growth Commission, the first and the second uh, growth commissions we've done, and the series that the CEP is doing on... Um, on what had to get out of the COVID uh, pandemic in particular. This is work by, uh, by Ralph Martin and Anna Valero looking at uh, how we should think of a sustainable recovery, thinking of green innovation. This is a, a paper I've written with a more US focus um, with some uh, proposals for the Biden administration, some of which are being taken up. So what are the principles? So, you know, I think the first principle, I mean, obviously there is a public finance issue. We are spending a lot of money to help protect the economy during the uh, during the COVID pandemic, and there's lots of calls for moving now towards fixing the public finances. I think moving too quickly to um, cutting spending or increasing taxes would be a really serious mistake. Um, we have we still have an era of low interest rates. Moving towards premature austerity was, I think, a mistake of what we learned from the global financial crisis. So, although we need a plan in order to um, to think about the public finances. We don't need to do this in an accelerated and a, a quick way like I think we mistakenly did at the start of the, uh, of the, um, the global financial crisis. Um, we have to think about the balance between protection and reallocation. So at the moment, a lot of our, a lot of the emphasis rightly has been going into protecting jobs and protecting businesses. But as we move into the post-COVID era, hopefully with, with, with help of the vaccines, we need to think about this reallocation. We need to think about how we move resources and jobs and activity towards some of the growth areas of, of, of the economy. So if we think about this, there are many of the support packages which we have in place um, both on the kind of uh, job retention scheme, the um, business support policies, bounce back loan scheme, uh, business interruption schemes, are, are going to have a cliff edge in the spring. So we need to smooth this cliff edge. You know, we need to um, reduce the support on this as the economy improves, not to do it too quickly in order to avoid going into a more serious recession and, and to reduce the loss of viable skills in the firms. And we need to own up to the fact that many of these loans um, are not all going to be paid back. So I welcome the Chancellor's um, elongating the time period for paying back some of the bounce back loan schemes. But I think actually we're going to need some more serious debt restructuring, which could be a mixture of the government taking debt equity swaps and actually writing off 
some of these these loans. And I think we also need to combine this with support for startups. So, you know, we have to really think about how we get this eradication activity into kind of growth activities and new startup activities and not focus just on kind of incumbent firms. How about in the longer run? Well, there's several things that we need here. One important lesson from the Growth Commission is that we need a set of new institutions to mitigate what I sometimes call policy attention deficit disorder, which has been one of the main problems with long run, uh, I think, investments in, in, in the UK. One of the UK's big problems is that we've been very bad at making long run investments in innovation and human capital. Uh, and an investment. So things like a national infrastructure bank are actually going to be very important in, t uh, you know, in order to try and provide uh, complementary finance to help us out of the uh, the hole that we're in. Having having some of these institutions which have some independence enables them to um, at least have some protection about the kind of day-to-day -day political pressures that that are faced. So it's very important that these are these new these set of new institutions that we have support growth and have some degree of independence. We need to have structural policies. Um, you know, there are there are serious challenges in our competition policy. We have growth of uh, these kind of superstar, extremely large firms, especially in the kind of digital sphere. We need to think about new types of ways of dealing with uh, reinvigorating competition to prevent. Uh, uh, a loss of uh, a loss of uh, enforcement of antitrust, and we have to come. You know, too much of competition policy is backward-looking, whereas I think in the modern economy we have to think of a forward-looking type of competition policy. So, a merger today with a small firm, which looks harmless, uh, may be harmful if that if that firm could have been a future competitor. Think about the Facebook WhatsApp merger, for example. Um, you know, I think Brexit is, a, has been a, is, a, is going to be a major hangover for the economy. And I think the, the best way, you know, of course, the best way will be to reverse Brexit. But in the absence of that, we should um, rejoin the single market as countries outside the European Union like Norway have. Uh, this would avoid having the trade, serious trade barriers that are going to be, are being, have been erected and they're going to be erected in, in the future against our nearest neighbour. So that's one important thing. And we also think of a variety of tax reforms. So, you know, we should be taxing bads like carbon. We should be aiming towards greater transparency, greater neutrality. We should be taxing um, more heavily um, you know, inefficient things which don't move like land uh, in order to, uh, you know, in order to get the kind of funds that we need. For human capital, the big challenge in the UK is intermediate skills. So, you know, uh, Britain's been rel relatively uh, strong, as I mentioned, on higher education and elite education. Uh, it's much weaker on people who don't go to university. So the real challenge is to build up intermediate skills to apprenticeships. I, you see people put forward a proposal for a human capital R uh, credit, like the R&D tax credit, which I think is a, a, good, a good idea. We think we need to think of a modern industrial policy. One of our strengths is around our universities, like we are now. So we should think about a modern industrial policy to um, build in our comparative advantage around universities. Um, in terms of innovation policies, um, you know, I mentioned we should think about around what works. You know, in uh, some of my work, I have this what I call a light bulb table, which goes through the portfolio of policies and tries to score them in terms of the quality of the evidence and the kind of cost benefits and the impact of inequality. So I think we need a mixture of different policies, a mixture of direct subsidies, of tax policies. Um, one thing that I think is important when we think about innovation policies is binding them together around missions. So the climate change mission is, a, is an important mission. And we can think about um, having our set of innovation policies um, as trying to deal with that problem. So use the best evidence of what works, but combine that with what we, uh, what we know is important about trying to get green innovation. And I'll end with one type of thing about, about innovation policy. So, you know, there's one set of policies around direct subsidies for R&D and about uh, tax credits. There's another set of policies around supply side policies, about increasing the number of potential inventors. And, you know, we can do that. Universities is one, immigration and skilled immigration is another. But one of the things I really think I'm very passionate about is what I sometimes call the lost Einstein effect. And this is, you know, goes back to some work that I did with Raz Chetty and, and uh, Zara Yaravel, who's uh, also a professor at LSE. Uh, and it comes from this, this following picture. What we did, this is from US data. What we did is we got um, the 1.2 million 
inventors in the US since 1996. So this is everybody who's ever taken a patent out in the US. And then we matched that to the de-identified tax records. So we could see you know, whether, you know, features of whether you grew up to be an inventor or not as a function of how wealthy your parents were. And what this graph shows you is that for kids who were born to the richest 1% of parents, they were 10 times more likely to grow up to be an inventor than for kids who were born in the bottom 50%. And we could also, you know, because we had some um, data on the kind of math scores and the test scores of these kids, we could also see whether this, this, this strong relationship between your kind of parents' income and your chance of becoming an inventor was due to well, whether these kids were smarter. That hardly explains anything. It really isn't to do with the underlying ability of these kids. It's that these kids just weren't given a uh, what you might think is a proper chance in, in life to become inventors. And you know, we sometimes call this a lost Einstein or lost Marie Curie effect. And the idea is that a major impediment to innovation is the supply of talented inventors held back either by class, the wealth of their parents, the race or their gender, and policies which are kind to improving schools and low-income neighborhoods, which improve the role models, which improve networks and mentors, which reduce discrimination, um, can unlock this hidden talent. We, we, we you know, estimate in our, in our paper that could quadruple the innovation rate. And it's an example of a set of policies which both could be good for equity by giving people chances in life and could be very good for long-run growth. This is a very long-run policy, but it's the kind of policy which both helps growth and also helps um, equity as well. So, you know, I'll wrap it up there. I mean, I think that, you know, I hope I've uh, shown you that we, you know, we in Britain and around the world face a severe productivity growth problem. It's particularly bad in the UK. And since, the, you know, this, this has obviously uh, hit us since COVID, but has been there since the global financial crisis. Um, the you know is this are these ideas i have politically feasible well you know events like covid and brexit i think are not welcome but events which cause major damage can shock society into making radical changes so i think about the example of world war ii no one would have wanted world war ii but out of the ashes of world war ii a new type of state was born the kind of welfare state uh, an idea that we could actually move towards a better way of living. We built new institutions around the world to do that through openness, through better trade. And, you know, I think at this point we have, you know, a lot of cross-party consensus on the need for investment and innovation, the importance of the role of the state in rebuilding, in rebuilding the economy. And, you know, my, my view is that we can use this as an opportunity to learn from social scientists over what policies work and do not work and help to, go forward, form this kind of plan to create sustainable and equitable growth over the next few years and decades. So thank you very much. And I'll hand over to Manish. Thank you so much, John. We are almost out of time and I've got permission to go five minutes over. So I'm going to rattle. We've got some fantastic questions in, uh, in the chat. I'm going to try and summarize a couple of them. Uh, so we've got a set of questions around the service sector and the fact that the UK economy is 80% services, there's no, there's nothing for services in the Brexit deal in terms of market access. To what extent is being so service dependent part of the problem with productivity? And as advanced economies become, have bigger service sectors, is that a big part of the reason why productivity and growth are stagnating? Um, I mean, it, it's true that measured productivity goes faster in manufacturing than it does in, in, in the service sector. But, you know, I, I, I think that um, you know, the, the measures I've shown you covered all sectors of the economy and the slowdown in productivity has happened both in manufacturing and in the service sector. So I, I, don't, think that, um, I, don't, I don't think that being in the service sector itself is a, is a disadvantage. In fact, I think you could see that many of the kind of high skills, um, knowledge intensive services like universities, like financial services, like uh, consultancy are actually part of the kind of growth, growth sectors of the future. So I, I actually don't think that's the, um, the, main, the, main, the main problem. And certainly there's a measurement issue, but yeah. I, you know, unless measurement got suddenly worse in 2008, which <laughs> I don't think it did, I, I don't think that's the main, the main problem we face. Okay. The inevitable question on robots and automation and what that's going to do to labor markets and productivity. What's your view? Well, you know, there's always been, you know, if you, if you go back in history, there's always these fears of, you know, robots destroying jobs or some form of automation destroying all jobs, you know, back all the way back to the times of the Luddites. And, you know, the, the story of 
what's happened. You know, we've had this amazing technological progress. You know, the the unemployment rate hasn't kept on going up. In fact, if anything, it's been pretty stable. So, I you know. I don't think that the, the main risk of robots and automation is over jobs. I think the main risk is over the quality of jobs. And the important thing that we have to realize is that many of these um, new technologies um, can actually reduce the quality of jobs. And we have to find a way of uh, setting the institutions and policies right that the the benefits that we get, the high productivity we get from automation can feed through into better quality of jobs. And I think we could do that both by helping direct technology, but also by having things which actually give people the skills to use those technologies better. So I, I actually, uh, I think it's, it's a valid concern, but I think there's much bigger things to worry about than the robots. <laughs> Okay, I think I can squeeze in two more questions because your answers are concise. Uh, competition policy, key obviously for innovation and growth. How do you see competition policy having to change to enable greater innovation and growth going forward? So I think the key thing is this to look have a forward-looking competition policy. So I think we have to we have to have a tougher competition policy. We have to realize that um, many firms, although they uh, you know they may create lots of good innovations, once they get to be very dominant, like the like the Microsofts, like the Apples, like the like the Facebooks, like the Googles, can do things to undermine competition, particularly, for example, by taking over promising startup firms, which could become threats to them in the future. So I think when we have a when we think about a merger or when we think about the right regulations, we have to look we have to be forward looking. We can't just say some this firm is small now because it may have become a uh, a threat to that dominant firm in the future. So we have to that's I think what we have to do fundamentally. And would you also the current competition policies you have to prove consumer detriment now when you say forward-looking do you also mean risks of consumer detriment in the future well the, the, we're, we're meant to look at risk of consumer detriment in the future even now um so you know we're meant to be saying you know but the problem is the burden of proof is often too heavy on the government side because you have to say you have to you know you have to really say oh well you know this small firm may become a competitor in the future but we can't be sure and the other side will say, well, you know, it's only, you know, only got a 5% or 2% market share now. So how can you possibly prove it's a threat? But I think you need to kind of shift the burden of proof. You have to say to the kind of Googles or the Facebooks, well, you know, give me some assurance that if you take over an, an Instagram, you're not going to, you know, absorb it into your uh, ecosystem and then prevent, you know, mean that it won't become a, 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 a platform threat to you in the future or it never was a platform threat. And I think that that shift to the burden of proof is something that we have to, we have to deal with, actually, um, because otherwise the companies can always get away with a very anti-competitive acquisition policy. Okay. Then I've got a question on taxation. Uh, how important do you think changes in taxation were in explaining the UK's relatively good growth performance? In between 1979 and 2008, and what tax changes would you recommend to boost productivity in the next decade? So, I, you know, I, there were, there were, I think some of the improvements were simplification of the tax system. I think the level of, of taxes is not so important. So, people, you know, obviously, if you, know, if you have 100% taxation of 90, that's not a good thing. But for the levels of general levels of taxation, we see it's not so much the level which is the problem it's when the tax system is very complex very untransparent has lots of distortions so simplification of the tax system transparency of the tax system some of those things i think were, were, were useful in terms of how how we change things so in terms of going going forward I think those are still good principles to have i would like to see um you know uh, a, a, you know, we, we have an already tax credit system. I'd make that a bit more generous. I would have a human capital tax credit system in order to give people incentives to get better training, especially these intermediate skills. Um, I would also shift more of taxation to immobile factors like land rather than mobile factors. So, so sales-based thing for multinationals where they're selling the stuff rather than the profits. And, um, you know, I, so I, I think we could, you know, a more property-based system would actually be um, actually a, quite a good thing for redistribution as well. Um, there's lots of um, other other kinds of things in the tax system I could I could uh, talk about, but I think that I think you should think about taxing bads would be a way to think about it. So carbon tax bads, 
don't don't tax goods. Try and keep it as as, as these. The Merley's review is fantastic on this. Actually, if I was reading one thing, I'd, I'd I'd take a look at that. Do you have any views on the relative taxation of capital versus labor? Because the tax system has now shifted heavily to taxing labor and not taxing capital. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think there is a bit of a, uh, there is a bit of a pro, yeah, I'd shift things a little bit back towards taxing capital. But I think it's the way we tax capital, which is probably more important, the balance between capital and labor. So I would, you know, like, like we we're just discussing with multinationals, because we try and tax them on the profits, they can play transfer pricing games with the, where they take the profits. If you actually tax them based on where they're selling the products, that's much, you know, it's much harder to, 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 to play games with that. So that would, having that as the tax base, like the OECD recommends, would be a way of actually protecting the, the tax base in a, in a more efficient way. Um, tax, you know, having subsidies for things which are growth creation, like innovation and research, I think are good things. Um, having heavier tax on more immobile factors like land and having a proper, proper property base. You know, Revaluating the, the true cost of land would be a good start for this. We haven't reevaluated that since 1992, I think. So that would be a very good place to start. But um, you know, more broadly thinking about um, taxing, taxing land rather than uh, taxing things which are kind of job and uh, productivity creation would be, would be the kind of principles I'd use. Okay. Well, thank you, John. That was fantastic. Quite a tour de force. You covered so much ground. Probably too much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you still managed to answer uh, about 10 questions in 10 minutes. So, uh, so thank you so much for, uh, for really challenging us to think differently about growth going forward and how we could have a different kind of growth, a better kind of growth, uh, but growth nevertheless uh, as a key way to improve human welfare over the years ahead. Uh, Thank you also to the audience for some wonderful questions. I'm sorry to have summarized them, some of them uh, a bit, but I think we covered most of them uh, and they were all excellent. And uh, please join in future events as we continue to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Center for Economic Performance. And I think this evening's presentation from Professor John Van Rienen shows you why CEP is such an important fixture in the firmament for generating creative, innovative, and highly relevant research to address the biggest problems. S- send me questions by email as well, if you want. So I'm very happy to receive questions by email um, and I'll, I'll seek to answer them. <laughs> very good. Thank you so much, John. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone for joining us this evening. Take care.